Let's pray as we begin. Which of you, when your son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Our Father in heaven, this Father's Day, we ask you for good gifts this morning. We ask that you would speak. And we come to you expectantly because we know that you love to speak. And yet we come to you humbly, asking that you would soften our hearts, because we know that they get hard. And so speak to us, please, this morning, in your son's name. Amen. A number of weeks ago, at the start of this series, um, do you remember, I put a chart on the, on the screen that talked about the fact that at least in sermons per chapter, Chronicles was the least preached book of the Bible. It's interesting, though, if you Google it, and if you look at various church websites, or there are sermon streaming services that you can link into, there are actually two passages that come up fairly often in Chronicles. The first one was the one from a couple of weeks ago, 1 Chronicles 29, um, the generosity of God passage. A beautiful passage as they take the collections for the temple, the end of David's reign he hands on to Solomon. And the other passage that comes up is this one for this morning. Why is it this one for this morning? Um, well, really, it's because of one verse. If you have a look down with me, it's verse 14. It's quite a famous verse. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. And indeed, this passage or this verse was genuinely my first ever full talk from the Bible that I was asked to give. September 1998. Classic late 90s curtains. One month after getting married, just back from honeymoon, and I was asked to speak at the Christian Union at Birmingham University um, on this verse, and they said, please speak to us about revival. And it is a fact, and it is a verse that is, in fact, often used for that. It turns out, if you Google it, that it's often preached around the inauguration of a new American president, whoever they are. Often it's preached then becomes particularly popular in large um, churches, large numbers of churches. But I think what we'll see this morning as we look in at verse 14 particularly is that while it's a verse that contains amazing promises and amazing truths and it's got lots to say to us this morning, it's actually very relevant for us, it's actually not about revival, at least in the sense that revival is often used. Um, so let's try and understand. I'm going to zoom in basically on one verse, we'll see. I will do a little bit of looking around that verse, um, but hopefully you'll see where I go with this. We're going to slowly work our way through one verse this morning rather than a big chunk of text. Before we say that, though, whenever we read the Bible, there are a number of things that we need to do to make sure we are understanding it as it was meant to be understood. And if you've not had a chance to listen in or catch up with Dave Dent's greenhouse sessions from a few weeks ago... Um, on understanding the Bible, hearing God's voice, then I would thoroughly recommend them to you. Um, helping us to read our Bibles better is a really important thing, lest we think God says some things that he's not actually saying. 
And what we must always do as we come to the text is try and understand what it meant to them first before we think about what it means for us now. And this passage in verse 14 particularly is a passage with a context. It is a verse written to a particular group of people in a particular time, in a particular place, with a particular set of needs, particular challenges, particular point in church history, in salvation history. And if we ignore them and simply take verse 14 and control C and control V it into our context, copy and paste it here, then we will get the wrong end of the stick and we will end up being muddled and we will think God promises things that he doesn't actually promise. So as I say, we're going to zoom in mostly on verse 14, but to use that as a bit of a launch pad, I want to go to um, 11 to 16 first, just to give you some context. So let me read 11 to 16 so you see where verse 14 comes in the middle. Um, and then we'll look at the previous chapter briefly as well as we try and understand why it is that God actually says verse 14 in the first place. So verse 11 again. And when Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace, so he's, he's finished building the temple finally, and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I've heard your prayer, and I've chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so there's no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people, well then, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. A couple of things just to say before we jump in. One is that this is the Lord confirming it is all systems go. This temple that's been built is good. This temple is sufficient. Now, God doesn't actually need a temple. Have a listen to Acts 17 later in the Bible. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and on earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and he, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. He doesn't need a temple, but this temple will be for a time the geographical and spatial representation of where God relates to his people, where his people can meet with him through the high priest, through sacrifices and the system set up. It's from here that God will engage with his people. It's at the core, the heart of the people of God. It had been the tabernacle, of course. They had journeyed from Egypt to the promised land. Now they are settled, and now the temple is here. So first thing to say is, as all systems go, this temple is going to be good, says the Lord. But secondly, it's worth seeing as well that verse 14 has a context because it is an answer to prayer. In fact, it is a promise to Solomon as a direct response um, to Solomon's prayer back in chapter 6. God is not randomly just saying verse 14. So just flick back, if you can, to page 440, the other side of the page there. Have a listen to this from the previous chapter. Uh, look at verse 24 and onwards. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they sinned against you, and when they turn back and give praise to your name, praying and making supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land you gave to them and their ancestors. 
When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray towards this place and give praise to your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land that you gave your people for an inheritance. When famine or plague comes to the land or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers or when enemies besiege in any of their cities, whatever disaster or disease may come and when a prayer or plea is made by anyone among your people Israel, being aware of their afflictions and pain and spreading out their hands towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive and deal with everyone according to all they do since you know their hearts, for you alone know the human heart so that they will fear you and walk in obedience to you all the time they live in the land that you gave our ancestors. Do you, do you see the context? See what Solomon is saying to the Lord? Lord, when you discipline us because we've turned our backs on you, so when you lead us into defeat by another army or a lack of rain or disaster or disease or mildew, whatever it might be, Lord, when you use these hard things and we turn back to you, then would you hear our prayer? Maybe with the comfort of being settled will come pride, and with pride will come self-sufficiency, and with self-sufficiency comes to them turning their backs on the Lord. And so he will remind them of him by hard times. But the point is, the promise from God in verse 14 has a context. It is an answer to Solomon's prayer. So let's dive in now. There's a bit of background for you. Let's get into that verse. What does God promise his people when they've turned their backs on him, when they've walked away from the God of life? What does he say he will do? We're just going to work clause by clause through verse 14. If my people who are called by my name, God's people do not belong to themselves. We are not our own. We are his. Um, The actual translation, I'm told, um, by my Hebrew scholar friend Dave Dent, is, if my people over whom my name is called, over whom my name is called, which is a Hebrew way of saying we belong to him. We are his. God ties his own name, his, his character, his very self, his personality, his actions, his covenant, his name, with his own people, tying them together. It's a pretty common way, actually, of God using um, that language as he talks about his people. These people are his people. So, for example, Deuteronomy 28, verse 10. So all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord. Or Jeremiah 14, verse 9. You are among us, Lord, and we bear your name. Do not forget us. Which is a glorious truth for them to grasp onto and for us to remember that God identifies himself with his people in such a way that we are his. We are as if we are called by his name. And in a world of confusion about value and identity and who we are, who we belong to, who are we as humans, to know that we belong to the Lord is profoundly precious. Some of you will know at my age and stage in life, I don't really get to watch grown-up films anymore. And so this idea reminds me of Toy Story. That beautiful, indelible name of Andy, written on Woody's and then indeed later on Buzz's foot. Can you see that? The sunshine's blocking it. 
It's more than just a sharpie, though, isn't it? The word on the feet denotes something more than just, uh, this is mine if I lose it. No, they, they belong to him. They are loved and they are accepted by the Lord. We are his. Well, so God's people are called by his name. And that's vital for us as believers to remember. It's vital for brothers and sisters around the world today for whom as they meet together as Christians, they will be in fear for persecution or even fear of their their lives. It's a precious truth. The Lord knows and he cares. They are called by his name. And in a room like this, I know life may be complicated and crazy and confusing. We may be going through very hard times, but we can take assurance that we are called by his name. We belong to him. He's... In a sense, he's there with the Sharpie, and he's written his name on us, denoting that we are his, and you can't wash it off. Fast forward a little way through the Bible, and you'll see a similar idea coming out as the early church forms. Um, Do you remember Saul on the road to Damascus? Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that is, the Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He doesn't say, why do you persecute my people? He says, me. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. You see that Saul persecuting the church? And as he does that, it means he is persecuting Jesus, because the church is the body of Christ. God and his people tightly linked. God has been there with the Sharpie, writing his name on us. God's ownership of his people matters. It's a great comfort, especially when life is hard. And it will matter in eternity as well. Again, fast forward a bit further in your minds to Revelation 14. Then I looked and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now don't get too caught up in the 144,000. It's just shorthand for saying the fullness of God's people. Everyone who's meant to be there is there. But then the labelling that his people will have, an eternal reminder that we do not belong to ourselves, we are his. If, if my people who are called by my name, which will be an eternal thing. It's a beautiful encouragement. It, it is a challenge too. Because if we are his, then that changes everything. It changes how we ought to live, living in such a way that it shows that we are his which is why we have reached this point in Chronicles. Why his people need to turn back to him again, because verse 13, when I shut up the heavens so there's no rain or command locusts to devour the people or send a plague among my people, why would God do that? Well, because his people have turned from him again and they've forgotten him again. They've forgotten who they belong to. They've forgotten that they are called by his name again. As we sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it.
prone to leave the God I love. The first active step is to turn back to him when we've wandered from him. I just wonder if that's a particular thing for someone here this morning. I've been praying this week over that. Maybe you know you've drifted off. Maybe you know you're wandering. Maybe you know and you're wrestling with it. Humble yourself before him and come back to him. That's the next little clause in the verse. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then something else will happen. But this bit of the verse sets the agenda for much of what's to come in Chronicles, actually. The writer will instruct us through example again and again and again. King after king after king after king will come. Some who are humble, some who will love the Lord, some who will lead the people quite well. Although, to be honest, it's a, we are in the decline of the helter-skelter at the moment. Some will do okay, others really won't. Others proud. They will do their own thing. They will lead the people badly away from him, really badly, as we shall see. But this idea of humble will keep peppering its way through the chapters that will come. A couple of examples. 2 Chronicles 12, the reign of bad king Rehoboam, verse 6 and 7, the leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is just. When the Lord saw this, they humbled themselves. The word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, since they have humbled themselves, I will not destroy them, but will soon give them deliverance. My, my wrath will not be poured out. Another one, 2 Chronicles 34, Josiah will be there in a few weeks' time. Um, the Lord says, because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before God when you heard what he spoke against this place and its people. And because you humbled yourself before me and tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. This idea of humility, it's, it's remembering who we are and remembering who our God is. That, that we are creatures entirely dependent upon him. That he is the author, the giver of life. And when we turn from him, then we lose out on life. He is the creator. All that we have comes from him. He, he doesn't need us, and yet we need him. And when we forget that, and when life just becomes about us forging our own little paths and doing our own little thing for our own benefit and our glory and doing it in our strength, and we are the, pro, we are the focus and prayer becomes the afterthought and, and we we're just with tunnel vision, looking from strength from within to keep going to crash on. And the Bible says that's pride. And so the Lord says, humble yourself and turn to me. The, the bad news is, I don't think that is something that we ever grow out of. I think the daily battle with pride will be a, a lifelong one. The writer John Stott with the Lord now. He said, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. The bad news is it's something that we don't ever grow out of. The good news is, is the Lord is always willing and wanting us to turn to him in humility. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Which means it may be a scary prayer for us to pray, 
But I wonder whether at times we need to pray that God would humble us. Pray that he might show you and he might remind you of your need of him. Because he opposes the proud and our hearts are far too proud. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. To seek his face is to seek his presence. It's a way of saying to worship him. And yet maybe we're scratching our heads thinking, well, isn't God always with us? Aren't we always in his presence? What does that actually look like? What does that actually mean? Well, I want to say yes and no. Yes in two senses. And then we'll come on to the no. Yes, God is always with us in the sense that he is omnipresent and therefore he is always near everything and everyone. He holds everything in being. His power is ever-present. He is always sustaining and always governing all things. He is never not present with us. He is always active. Second yes for us as Christians, this side of the cross as well, is he is always present with us by his Spirit. The spirit of Jesus. So when Jesus dies, and then as he's ascending, which is before he ascends, he says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, by which he means, I think, by his spirit, as his spirit will be poured out upon his people. So yes, he is always with us. His presence is always among us. But then no. And we need to be quite careful here. But I take it there's a sense in which he is not always with us because again and again and again and again the people of God in the Bible, whether before or after Jesus, are called to seek him. As in our example here, or as in the way Paul will say to various churches, do not grieve the Lord or grieve his Holy Spirit, whatever it might be. There are seasons where we neglect God and journey on in our own strength and for our own glory, giving him no thought and not putting our trust and our hope in him and doing it for ourselves, doing it on our own. Yes, we're still his. Yes, we're still children of the Heavenly Father. Yes, we are still loved by him. But there's a sense in which we're not enjoying the communion with him that we ought. Now, as a staff team, we've been reading, um, I think, a really helpful book by a guy called Tim Chester, and it's called Enjoying God. Um, it'd be a good summer read for you. Um, but near the beginning, there's a particularly helpful bit, and he talks of the fact that our union with Jesus is unchanged, but that our communion with Jesus can change. I think that's a really helpful distinction as we try and get our mind around this idea of God's presence with us. So he says that our union with Christ is an objective thing. As believers, we are joined to him, we are found in him. And then from that union comes our communion with Christ, a subjective thing. Now, Chester is um, translating, channeling, um, an English Puritan named John Owen for our ears. Again, if you're feeling brave, you can go and find John Owen on it. But let me just quote to you from Tim Chester. I think this is helpful. He says, it's helpful to say that there are two ways in which our relationship with God takes place. And his point is that union is a one way. It is all God's initiative. It's all down to God. That we have this union with God in Christ. It's not affected by what I have done or what I might do. It's all founded in his grace. 
And that creates this great foundation for life. The sense in which there's an adoption that happens. You are in the family. You are joined to him. You are his. That is your union with Christ. But then there's a communion. And that's a two-way relationship. There's a giving and a receiving. My communion then is affected, he says, by what I do or don't do. He continues to say that the more time I spend with God, the more I read his word, the more I respond in faith to the circumstances of my life, the more I pray, the more I look for him and see him involved in my day-to-day existence, then the more I enjoy that communion with God. See the distinction? It's helpful, isn't it? We have a security because of our union, and yet that has a, an implication for our relationship with the Lord, where we enjoy him and treasure him and spend time with him. We're adopted and we're in, we're in the family, and yet you will know in any kind of family that you are a part of, the way that you relate to others will have implications for how you're doing with them, whether you enjoy being with them. So do you see what what our writer, what the chronicler is saying in one sense, his, his face the beauty of his presence, the brightness of his character, our communion with him is hidden as we've turned from him to self. We've turned away from him and we're doing our own thing. That's been helpful for me just thinking through this idea of the need for our communion with the Lord to genuinely experience him and enjoy him and treasure him, to seek his face, to to spend time with him, the, the reality of relationship. I'm going to pop it in the home group notes just for time this morning, but I, I'm aware that Paul's prayer to the Ephesians is really helpful in this. And the second prayer, chapter 3. This idea that real Christian maturity is not just a dry knowledge of truth or how well we know our Bibles. But actually it's a genuine, real relationship with the Lord. This communion that flows from our union with him. That we would grasp his love for us. That we would love to spend time with him. That we would love to seek his face. And he continues, verse 14. Seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. You see, repentance is more than simply stopping, but it's a turning. It's turning from the other gods we're serving, the other places we're looking for life, and it's a turning back to him, to the one true God who alone can bring us life, the one who we were made for, the the one who we so easily turn from. The context here, of course, in Chronicles There'll be a whole raft of Canaanite so-called gods. We will encounter them in the weeks to come again. But they are seeking, in a sense, to capture the hearts of God's people. They offer them promises. It probably won't be our experience. The gods whom we are tempted by will will be far more, perhaps mundane, perhaps far more alluring for us in our culture. I wonder what those things would be for you. Where do you go for life, for joy, for salvation? What are the lies that we listen to? 
If we trace it right back, those things will be self, fundamentally. Self will be at the root of all the idols we run after, the gods that we are allured by. Self at the centre, wanting to do our things in our way, in our strength, for our comfort, for our glory. Using time and resources and things that he give us, but for us, for self. And again, in a room like this, that will be a whole... There'll be a whole variety of different things that will work its way out. A whole manner of trajectories depending on our context and our wiring and our upbringing and the cultures that we're a part of and the tendencies that our hearts have. They will be different. The universal thing is that we will all struggle. It will be a thing for all of us. How we serve self might look different for each of us. But each of us will be serving self. One commentator on this verse says, The path of obedience to God is never the natural choice of any human being. Naturally, it's self. There's something unnatural, supernatural, in seeking to serve him. And so we're called to be those who would daily turn from our wicked ways, who who daily turn to him. And what's God's response going to be at this point? Well, he's promised. Do you remember that the temple works? Solomon, this temple that you have built, this temple that you have constructed, these prayers that you have prayed, chapter 6, I've heard them. And indeed, I will hear your prayers. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. This temple will be God's place of relationship with his people. He will see and he will hear them. There are some prayers that God always answers. And I take it our prayer of repentance, humble repentance, is a prayer he will always answer. And so verse 15 and 16, now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. And he will forgive their sin and he will heal their land. Now, when you think about healing lands, of course there's a context here again. The land was God's promised place for his people. It was promised back to Abraham in Genesis 12 and then 15 and 17. And they were going to be a chosen people living in this land. And from that land, there would be a blessing to the, all the nations, to all the world. And so to heal the land means he's going to cease the drought that he's brought. Or, or verse 28 from last chapter, famine or plague or blight or mildew or locusts or grasshoppers or whenever enemies besiege them. But you see the context. That means we can't just apply that to us now in a sort of willy-nilly way. Assuming that if we as his people will pray, then he's going to come and heal the UK and he's going to come and bring unity amongst us in the midst of Brexit, whatever it might be. As if the UK is the promised land. No, no, sorry, we're not. Or for our American siblings, that if, we, if they pray and turn back to God, then he'll do something extraordinary in their land and heal their land. Unite the Republicans and the Democrats, whatever it might be. Now, they may be good things to pray for, don't mishear me, but I want to say he has not promised those things for us. 
I take it from the scriptures that God has not tied his glory and his blessing and his name and his fame to any physical land now in the same way. That doesn't mean we don't pray for our leaders or our politicians or those in authority. Of course we do. It doesn't mean that we don't pray for blessing, in fact. But to expect some sort of national revival is a misunderstanding of these verses and it's a misunderstanding of the kingdom of God. It's dangerous when we think God has promised something to us that he's never actually promised us. Now, we are under a new covenant. Jesus has taken God's anger against his people's sin already. And so it's better that we pray like this. And here we'll finish. It's better that we pray for the church. There's a sense in which the land and the church are largely equivalent, not quite the same. But pray that God would help his church to be a bright and a beautiful light in a dark land. Pray that we as the people of God, called by his name, will turn back to him and will humble ourselves and will pray and will seek his face and will turn from our proud and wicked ways that he might revive his church. Pray that this church, that Mordom Road Church, would be revived as we turn back to him. That he would bring new life in us, among us, and through us in this locality. And he thought we'd pray that he might revive the church in Oxford. Love Oxford will be happening in a few weeks' time. But let's be bold. Why not pray that the Lord might revive his church in the UK and indeed throughout the world? That the world might see God's beauty in and through and among his people as we turn back to him again. As we humble ourselves, as we pray, as we seek his face, as we turn from our wicked ways. And as we look to him again for life. Let me lead us in prayer as we finish. Father in heaven, so much in that one verse. We thank you. Thank you that we are yours. We are called by your name. Thank you that you intimately tie who you are with us as your people. Indeed, to the extent that when when we suffer, then you suffer. When churches are decimated, then you feel it. Lord, we we confess that so often we turn from you. Our hearts indeed do wander. And so we pray that we might be a humble people. Father, it's a scary prayer to pray, but would you humble us that we might look to you? that we might know that in our own strength we're not sufficient and we can't do it? Would we be those who seek your face, who enjoy your presence, who are, are confident in our union with the Lord Jesus? And so would that flow into a communion and a friendship with him 
a love for him? Might we treasure him? Might we see his beauty increasingly? Might we love to spend time with you through him? And might we turn from our wicked ways? Lord, you know each of us. You know how the worshipper's self works its way out for each of us. You know the secret things of our hearts. Help us to turn back to you, please. Thank you that you promised to hear prayers like that. I thank you that you promised to answer them. We pray that your name would ring out from this church and from other churches and that they might impact the places that we live and that you would bring life. In Jesus' name, amen.